This is Courage Cast. Faith, inspiration, and motivation for today. Well, I am so excited about this episode and the the subsequent episodes of uh, Courage Cast because we have we're going to be joined by Matt Parker, the founder and president of the Exodus Road. Matt, welcome to the Courage Cast podcast. Thanks so much, Eric. It's good to be here. Yeah. So, Matt, you are uh, the founder of the Exodus Road. Uh, which helps support uh, active operatives, excuse me, on three continents and have supported the rescues of 749 victims of human trafficking with local police. So you support the efforts of local national police authorities, and you work with 25 partners globally to train 640 nationals through training events for those on the front line. So you're really making a huge impact. And I know there's a lot more that needs to be done in the area of human trafficking. So I'm, I'm excited. Uh, what an amazing thing you've, you've done. Tell me how you've gotten involved in this. How did, how did this start for you, this journey? You know, it, it's so strange in my mind how, you know, God works and how, you know, things in life kind of coalesce at, at various times that we never would imagine. You know, I spent a lot of time in my youth as a youth pastor in my 20s. And I've always had, you know, this deep heart for the global poor. I've taken young people around the world, you know, doing your typical youth ministry projects, painting fences at orphanages or whatnot. And uh-huh. in that process, um, you know, I just really fell in love with the marginalized and really wanted to dedicate my life towards helping whomever I could help. And that really played this critical role uh, in our journey towards human trafficking. We moved to Southeast Asia, my wife, and we have three kids. We all moved to Southeast Asia. uh, I guess it was 2010. And we ran a children's home Mm -hmm. in the north uh, uh, of one of these large Southeast Asian countries. And at that time, we didn't know anything about human trafficking, but the girls that were in our home, our children's home, came from impoverished communities on, on various border towns. Mm. And we began to hear these rumors that the pretty girls would be bought uh, by a broker and then sent to Bangkok and sold for sexual services. Wow. When that That's pretty disruptive to think about. And so I hopped in the car with my assistant director who was a a national and we drove to these border town villages and I just began to, to, to do research. I just began to interview the, the village leadership, the village pastors, and I would just ask them about their community and what deficiencies and choke points they had to create this kind of thriving environment. And then one of the questions I asked was about human trafficking. And I asked if it was true you know, that brokers would come to the village and hire the, the pretty girls mm. and then, you know, take them down south. And the, I think I interviewed four villages over a two or three day period, and they all categorically said absolutely all the pretty girls get jobs and, and they, they're taken away. And their parents allow this to happen? They do. And and there's a couple of things to say about that. You know, some sometimes the parents know 
that their child will be sold as a prostitute, but a lot of times they don't know. And I try to explain to our Western audiences in particular, the nature of poverty and desperation is such, especially in these remote village towns where they may have four or five children and really struggling to feed them, especially if there's a drought, which the monsoons have really been kind of dramatic in Southeast Asia over the last decade and their crops may be washed away and maybe they had to take a loan out just to plant those crops or uh, because these villages are so remote, there's not fair trade, you know, so they can't actually sell their produce for a fair wage. Um, So there's, there's very, very, I guess there's several mechanisms there which could put a desperate family into a situation where they would believe the lie that there's a good job for their daughter in Bangkok or in Phnom Penh or, you know, one of these major cities in Southeast Asia. Mm. The other component to that, and I think as Westerners, we, you know, we're, we're very resourceful and we have a lot of technology. And so for us to put human trafficking on our grid, we have to understand at least in Asia that when a farmer might sell his daughter, um, or be fronted some money to let her go work in a different city. He doesn't have an iPhone to track his daughter or call his daughter. He has zero. He doesn't have a computer in his hut, you know, to email his daughter. His capacity, even if he found out that she had been kidnapped or, you know, there was some mechanism of fraud, force, or coercion to get that daughter to do sex acts, he's he's not going to have the capacity to find her. Mm-hmm. Um, And so you really have this scenario where there are people in the world who are preying upon the poor to exploit them for profit. And there's a a common phrase in the human trafficking, counter human trafficking community uh, called rape for profit. And that's really what's happening. These girls, uh, they don't want to be in the brothel. But oftentimes their passports are taken. They may not speak the local language or dialect. Uh, if they run away, corrupt law enforcement will bring them back. Wow. Or uh, they run away, they get caught, and then instead of them being beaten, they may beat other girls uh, that, that are suffering there alongside her as a psychological uh, kind of entrapment mechanism. Hmm. Uh, I also try to explain, too, you know, there's not, there doesn't have to be ropes around their wrists. You know, I think in the West, when we think of human trafficking, we think of someone tied up in the back room, which, which that's possible. And, and there's, you know, definitely situations around the world where that, that probably happens. Uh, in my experience, you don't need ropes. You just need to place a victim under duress and say, well, if you run away, I'll go get your sister or I'll kill your mom. Um, and that, that tends to be enough because they believe that this perpetrator will do those things. Um, so in many ways, the threats are, are psychological yeah. threats, emotional right. threats. But I want to ask so, you just a couple of questions about um, the the parents. So these are parents who are poor, or m- many times just a father or mother, maybe, or whatever, and they're desperate. Mm-hmm. And they don't... So they, they, they also don't have any... Uh, re- what is their religion, typically, that they... <clears throat> come out of that that helps them because i know as a as a christian that would play a role for me as well 
Mm-hmm. If I was a believer in a, a parent, I'm just putting myself in the parent role here for a minute. And these kids, these girls are how old typically? I, those are my two questions that I have. Yeah. Uh, well, we have a, a fairly large operations team in India mm-hmm. and India is a very large, large country. And so, you know, there's lots of religions, but there's Hinduism and uh, Islam. And I mean, there's, there's lots of religious implications, but there's it, beyond religion, there's a lot of cultural implications yeah. in India. Mm-hmm. So we've rescued girls as young as 10 in India. And when we've interviewed those families, when our teams and social workers have interviewed those families, they, they really express these really ancient kind of cultural norms of uh, worshiping a particular goddess um, in the Hindu religion where you offer your youngest daughter, one of your daughters, um, to prostitution uh, for for various implications out of the Hindu religion, but also there's this kind of understanding in this subculture of selling one of your daughters or allowing her to work in red light districts in order to generate enough revenue to benefit your other daughters who need a dowry or who need uh, to get married. And so you don't if you don't have the money to do that, it's kind of widely accepted in some cultures in India to exploit one of your daughters to help the other daughters. And, and I think, you know, as we look, as we look at these different countries that the Exodus road operates in those factors, you know, there's, there's like these common mechanisms of human trafficking of how the fraud or the force or the deception takes place. But then there's all these various motivations that kind of, as you're describing, some are religious and some aren't, some are just cultural or some are poverty driven, some are lack of education. Um, and sometimes parents are complicit and they know what's going to happen. Oftentimes, and I would say the majority of the time, they, they're not fully aware. Mm. Uh, or, you know, in lots of these cultures, sexuality is very, very shameful to talk about out loud. And so you may make some concession without fully understanding the scope of what's about to happen to your daughter. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, there's it's very complex. It's not as simple as, you know, I think from the West, we hear that parents are selling their daughters and we're like, and those must be awful parents or awful people or, or, you know, some, you know, some, something that's dramatic, black and white. And oftentimes these complex social justice issues aren't black and white. They're very gray. Yeah. Uh, it's very difficult to define, you know, all the points of failure in protecting children. Uh, and the new, you know, I would say the nuclear family is, is gotta be the most central force to protect children in the world. And across the world, we're seeing the nuclear family really crumble, Yeah. uh, from financial reasons to, you know, affairs, or I know in places like Thailand, especially in the North, we see lots of single moms, mm-hmm. uh, cause, uh, the, the father's run away or they're addicted to alcohol or drugs. They can't find good employment and they just abandon their family. That's not unique to Thailand, but those are some of those mechanisms that really create this environment where children are exploited, children are sold, children are used as sex objects. And and all of that is very complicated. And every case we do seems to be unique, although there's some similarities between them. You know, when you talk about human trafficking, uh, statistics vary on this, but a, a large majority are trafficked for sexual services. 
And then kind of that other big chunk would be just labor trafficking. And so that's when you get into the palm oil plantations where they're using child labor, cocoa plantations, mm. brick making factories and, and uh, fishing vessels. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, you have the sex side of things where little girls primarily, but boys as well, are being used by everyone uh, for sex, for profit. And then the other side of the coin is this labor where someone might take a job or a promise of employment, they cross a border, they get to the location only to realize they're not going to be paid or they're going to be paid very, very little. The living and working conditions are deplorable and they just have no recourse. And I think in, in the West, we think, well, call 911. You know? Right, right. The problem, the problem with a lot of global governments is there's high amounts of corruption. Mm. Uh, and so that employer, whether it's for sexual services or labor trafficking, will likely have multiple officers on payroll. Mm-hmm. So their whole job is to protect that criminal syndicate, to, to protect. And oftentimes those officers get to sleep with the girls or they get you know some amount of kickback for protection. Uh, oftentimes it's largely financial. So, you know, when, when somebody's trafficked globally for labor trafficking, they get there, they're beaten. They, they don't have a a healthy work, living condition. They're desperate for money. A lot of times they're lied to. They'll say, Hey, you know, you don't get paid till the end of the month. Mm. And then the end of the month rolls around and they say, well, you're going to get paid, but you won't get paid for another two months because of this, that, and the other. Well, they believe that because they can't come to grips with this idea that they're not going to get paid. Yeah. And after four to six months of that, they wake up and they realize I'm never going to get paid, mm. but I don't know how to get out of this situation. Yeah. Okay, well, that is just the beginning of the story. Uh, we are going to have a three-part interview with Matt Parker of The Exodus Road. Uh, if you'd like to, go ahead and check out theexodusroad.com right now to learn more. There's a fantastic movie there that you can watch, a short movie, so you can learn a little bit more about what they do. And uh, I think you'll find it uh, really worthwhile. Well, I'll be back again tomorrow, friends, with another episode of Courage Cast. I'm Eric Nordoff, and we'll hear more of this amazing story and how we can get involved this week. Have a great day, everyone. 